coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 28th of May, 2023, as through fire. Good morning. My name is Jake Monskis. I'm one of the elders at Woodland Christian Church, and recently uh, your pastor, Pastor Kim, reached out to my lead pastor, uh, Pastor LaPierre, La, Pastor Scott LaPierre, and looking for someone to fill his place this morning, so I was, I was thrilled to have the opportunity to step in and, and bring a message to you guys this morning. Uh, my family's here, my wife, and uh, six of my children. The seventh is, is, at our, um, is at Woodland Christian Church today doing scripture readings, so he's our oldest, he's 14. And I won't go through all their names, but um, chances are if you hear a child making noise, it's one of my children, so sorry about that. Well, let's go ahead and start uh, with a word of prayer. Father God, we come to you this morning and anticipate hearing from your word. And Lord, uh, this is a message I believe you've put on my heart to bring to your people about compromise with the world. And Lord, uh, we feel that pull um, that the world offers the thing the the things of the world call out to us, and I just pray that through this message you might strengthen us to resist uh, the pull of worldly and fleshly desires, Lord. I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is As Through Fire, and I anticipate that will make more sense as we go along. We're going to be in Genesis 13 to start, so if you'd like to open your Bibles there, that would be wonderful. We're going to be looking at the life of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. Now, if you're familiar with Lot at all, you know that he was a believer, but he's famous for what? Not really living like one. Lot was a believer who lived in terrible compromise with the world. And we know that he's a believer for two reasons. First, 2 Peter 2, 7 through 8 makes it clear that he was righteous. It says that when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And three times in the same sentence, it declares he's righteous. Scripture kind of beats us over the head with it. The second way that we know that Lot was righteous is because God rescued him, delivered him from those, that wicked city before he poured out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we begin reading about Lot, it's going to be very difficult to see him as righteous. We need to understand that Lot is righteous not by his works, but the same way that Abraham was righteous, the same way that we are righteous. He was positionally righteous. He was righteous through faith. He was righteous because God had accounted him as righteous. Now, having qualified it that way, Lot is still this very big challenge for me when I read about him, to understand him as a believer. It's a challenge to my understanding of salvation, that a believer can remain in compromise so long and show such worldly behavior and even resist his own deliverance. But if it's possible, then we need to take a look at Lot's life and see that as a warning for ourselves. Are we failing in the same ways that Lot did? 
Now, Lot cannot be held up as a model for believers to follow, but I believe he can be held up as an extreme warning. The first time that we're actually introduced to Lot is in Genesis chapter 13. And the context is Abraham and he had grown very rich in livestock such that their two camps couldn't be sustained by the same piece of land they inhabited. And the shortage for resources caused strife between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen because they were competing for resources. So to solve the conflict, Abraham comes to him and proposes a solution. He says, whichever way you choose to go, he he says, let's part ways. Whichever way you choose to go, I'll go the other direction. So Lot has a very big decision to make. And if you look with me at Genesis 13, 10 through 13, it says, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now that last verse, verse 13, is ominous. It's the narrator foreshadowing terrible things to come. It indicates that the men of Sodom were well known for their wickedness, yet Lot did not consider that when he made his choice. Lot was only thinking of what? Prosperity, thinking of himself, of his income, of taking his ease. And that leads me to lesson one on your handouts, if you grab one of those on the way in. Lesson one, compromise begins with ignoring spiritual danger. Compromise begins with ignoring spiritual danger. The plain of Jordan where Sodom was located was the picture of wealth and abundance. It was described as well watered, And to Lot, it was like the garden of the Lord. That's what we do when we begin to covet something. We build it up in our minds. We only consider that which supports the decision that we've already made in our hearts. For a man whose wealth was measured in livestock, this was the obvious choice. It would be an end to squabbling herdsmen. There would be no shortage of water. There would be no shortage of vegetation for his animals to graze on. He made his decision in the wisdom of man. He reasoned this way. What will make me the most successful? What will give me the greatest advantage? What will allow me to take my ease? He lifted his eyes and saw, indicating that he was walking by sight and not by faith. 1 John 2.15 warns us against loving worldly things. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, Lot convinced himself to give in to his desires because he did not consider the spiritual danger he was entering into. In this account, Sodom is a great Old Testament picture of the world. Let's compare how Lot viewed the land to how God viewed the land. To Lot, the land called out, inviting him in. But to God, the land cried out, inviting judgment. To Lot, the people of the plain were rich, but to God, they were spiritually bankrupt. 
To Lot, the land was green and well watered, but to God, it was fit to be raised with fire. Who was right? That's a foolish question. Of course, God was right, but the point is Lot's worldly desires blinded him to seeing the land the same way that God saw it. Things that look good, things that look very promising to us, things that look very beneficial to us in a physical way or a temporal way may be very disastrous to us spiritually. And for that reason, we should develop a healthy distrust of our own motivations and desires. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. <clears throat> you might be asking yourself, how can I avoid making a potentially very terrible decision like Lot did? You can avoid a lot of heartache and discipline and wasted years by seeking godly counsel when we have a big decision to make like Lot did. Sometimes it's very easy for believers that are around us, that know us, that are on the outside of making this decision, it's very easy for them to see the dangers that we may ourselves may not see. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. I just wonder what might have been different if Lot perhaps had sought counsel from Abraham before he made this decision. Verse 12 says that he pitched his tent even as far as Sodom, and a tent conveys that he's still nomadic. He's still able to move along with his herds as needed. And you get the sense that pitching his tent near Sodom is as far toward that wicked city he was um, thought it okay to go. But the world has a way of pulling us deeper than we intended to go, doesn't it? That brings me to the next lesson on your handouts. Lesson two. A compromised believer, part one, lives a double life. A compromised believer lives a double life. So you can turn now to Genesis 19, and that's where we'll remain for the rest of the sermon this morning. Give you a few moments to turn there. Genesis 19, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is, where does Lot live? Some time has gone by since Genesis 13, but where does Lot live? He lives in a house, no longer in a tent. He lives in the city, no longer on the outskirts. What happened? He moved near the world to pursue the things the world pursues. He moved toward the world, and the world pulled him in deeper than he intended to go. He might have had great intentions. I mean, he, remember, he is a believer. He loves the Lord, but the city of Sodom, filled with wickedness, pulled him in. And I think we should take care of what we're thinking about Lot. You and I are made from the same fallen flesh that he was. We have the same deceptive hearts that he had. The same sin and temptation that was within Lot 
It's just as easily within you and me. So have you, and I should be asking myself, have I been lifting my eyes toward any worldly thing? Have we pitched our tent, as it were, near Sodom? My hope is that Lot's account may be a sobering warning to all of us about keeping ourselves separate from the world. And the second thing I want you to notice is where Lot was when he saw the angels. Verse 1 says that he was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And I believe this is a strong hint of what the city offered that eventually pulled him in. The gate of the city was like the public square. It's where business was done. It's where important meetings took place. It's where justice was pronounced. And this is where we find Lot sitting. The city gate was for prominent, important, and wealthy men. I don't want to belabor the point, but you need to see the progression of compromise in Lot's life. He went from looking towards Sodom to pitching his tent near Sodom to living within Sodom to then sitting at its gate, indicating a position of leadership in the city. And the point I want to make is just that compromise with the world might begin small. It might be innocuous at first, but it has a way of growing. Now, Lot is a compromised believer, but there are some good things that he did in this account that I want to highlight. First of all, he sees these angels who appear like men, and he instantly responds with reverence. I'm speculating, but based on his reaction, it seems like he recognized that they were from God. And if you look at the previous chapter, Genesis 18, um, Abraham has a similar reaction when he sees these two angels with the Lord. Verse 1 says, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And secondly, he immediately recognizes what? These men are in a great deal of danger entering into this city. To Lot, these men are just naive outsiders who do not know what they are walking into. Now, that begs a few questions, okay? Question 1, if Lot understood the danger this city poses to outsiders so well, why did he move within its walls? And actually it's worse because we'll find out it's not just him, it's his wife and his daughters that live there with him. But this is what a compromising believer does. They can recognize the danger or they can recognize sin in someone else, but they've made peace with it for themselves. Or let me say it like this. He understood the danger to these men, but he could not discern the danger he was putting his own loved ones into. Question two. If the city truly is dangerous to outsiders, and we know by the rest of the account that we're familiar with, we know that it is, how was Lot safely able to live within the city walls? And I fear the answer to that question is that he was accepted as one of them. In verse 7, he calls the men of the city, my brethren. So Lot is a believer that can walk comfortably with the ungodly one moment and then completely change course and begin to walk in a godly way when these godly visitors show up. So here's a test to see if you might be compromising in a similar way as Lot. Do you have a group of worldly friends and a group of godly friends that you would be very hesitant to bring together into the same room. 
One reason you may not want to bring them together if you're in compromise is that your double life might be exposed. Those two groups might see an inconsistency with your behavior. The third way that Lot looks good in this account is that he immediately begins taking action to protect these men. And you get the sense that he wants to quickly usher them into his home, feed them, and then quickly send them on their way in the morning, perhaps before the sun rises. And I don't know if angels have a sense of humor, but you almost get the sense that they're making sport of Lot here. They, they know the reputation of the city. They know that they're not in any real danger. Here's Lot clearly panicking, trying to figure out how to protect them. And they say, no, we'll spend the night in the open square. Very purposefully, they're ratcheting up the tension that Lot feels. And perhaps they wanted to give Lot an opportunity to tell the truth about the wickedness of the city and the real danger that outsiders faced. Verse 3 says that Lot insisted strongly, but he concealed the real reason he wanted them to come to his home. He couldn't tell them the real reason he wanted them to come to his home without exposing his own double life. And the last way that Lot looks good is by his hospitality. He takes these men into his home and they feast together. Now I wanted to point out the good in the account for two reasons. The first reason is that it shows that Lot led a double life. He adapts to whatever company he's with, walking in a worldly manner one moment, integrated into this wicked society, and then walking in a godly manner the next when these angels show up. And the second reason I wanted to bring out and highlight the good is things are about to turn towards unspeakable wickedness. And that wickedness does not only come from the men of the city, but also from Lot himself. It becomes very difficult to see Lot as a believer from this moment on. And that brings me to the next part of lesson two. Lesson two, a compromised believer, part two, suffers corruption. A compromised believer suffers corruption. Look with me at verses four and five. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. And this is what Lot was afraid of from the moment he laid eyes on these men. I want you to notice the exhaustive description of who was involved on the attack on Lot's house. It says, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And that really just doesn't leave anyone out. I'm reading from the New King James. The last word in verse 5, carnally, is italicized because it's a helpful addition. The ESV simply says, bring them out to us that we may know them. And although the Bible doesn't shy away from revealing the worst aspects of depraved humanity, it doesn't necessarily present them to us graphically. And I think that's important to know and even instructive for us. So my goal this morning is to faithfully preach these verses, bringing out the lessons that we can learn from them, but without being needlessly graphic. And I just want to take a step back here and say this. This is the character of all the men in the city that Lot chose to move into and raise a family in. Homosexuality is not a new problem. 
but it's been in men's hearts since the beginning. When man rejects God and suppresses God and rebels against God and worships instead created things, Romans 1, Romans chapter 1, describes how God gives them up and hands them over to their sin. He removes the restraints, and in the downward spiral of human depravity, the worst sort of sins result. We live in a society that accepts and even celebrates homosexuality. In fact, I'm sorry to announce, June is coming, which happens to be the month that our society celebrates homosexuality the most, but it can never be accepted and celebrated by God's people. It is sin. And often I think we wonder, how can God allow our country to go unpunished <laughs> because of its acceptance of homosexuality? We look at these accounts in, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and we wonder, why doesn't God do that to us? Well, you need to know this. Rampant homosexuality is a sign of God's wrath and judgment. It may not be fire and brimstone like Sodom and Gomorrah experienced, but it is wrath. It is the wrath of judicial abandonment. This is what happens when God steps back and removes the restraints and lets humanity go where it wishes. As a believer... As a spiritual person, Lot must have thought that he could remain uncorrupted by his exposure to the people of Sodom. And if we're honest, we do that. We, we also think that we can remain uncorrupted when we dip our toes into what the world offers. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And 1 Corinthians 5.6 Speaking of sin spreading in the church, it says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Was Lot affected by his exposure to the men of Sodom? Let's keep reading. Look at verses 6 through 8. So Lot went, out through, Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they've come under the shadow of my roof. Was Lot corrupted by his time in Sodom? Yes, terribly, terribly so. He was able to discern the evil about to be done uh, to his guests, but he was unable to discern the great evil in sacrificing his daughters to these men. And that should terrify anyone fooling around with the things of the world. You, may, you might not even recognize the corruption that has been wrought in your hearts until some great pressure comes upon you like Lot faced. And as terrible as that was, consider this. Was this the first time Lot offered his daughters to the people of Sodom? By choosing to assimilate into Sodom, who would their friends be? Sodomites. Who would be available husbands for them? Sodomite men. Also, I think it's very likely that their mother was a Sodomite woman because she isn't mentioned until after Lot is already living within Sodom. And later we see her turning back toward the city, indicating that she wanted to remain. All of their biggest influences besides Lot himself would be the inhabitants of a city seemingly given over to their sin. Let's continue with verses 9 through 11. 
And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here. He keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. It's unbelievable to me that being struck blind was not enough to overcome their desire to violate Lot and his guests. These men give us a glimpse into the level of depravity that man is capable of when, when they are unrestrained and handed over to their sin. This might be the first time, the only time, that Lot has stood in real moral opposition to the men of the city. We don't have a full account of his life, but up until this night, he was an accepted member of society. At the first sign of opposition, the men of the city turn on him and threaten to do worse to him than they had planned to do to the men that came under his roof. And you see what happened? They finally realized that Lot wasn't actually one of them. He finally made it clear that he opposed to their wickedness. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now, Lot does attempt to warn his sons-in-law. How do you think that's going to go? Do you think that he's going to have any credibility with them? What kind of witness do you think he'll have? That leads me to part three of lesson two. Lesson two, a compromised believer, part three, spoils their witness. A compromised believer spoils their witness. A common way that believers justify compromising with sin is that they tell themselves, if I compromise in this way, it will give me an opportunity to witness to the lost. And this is one way in which our hearts can be very deceitful. We can fool ourselves into feeling very spiritual while doing very fleshly things. So picture a young woman who recently came to the faith while in a relationship with an unbeliever. You know, what she should do is break that relationship off and focus on her relationship with the Lord and look for a godly young man. But if she wanted to remain, she might tell herself, well, how can I witness to this person if I leave? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to lose any chance to bring them to salvation. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? So I just want to say we need to be very carefully, or we need to be very careful in our relationships with unbelievers. We don't want to isolate from them completely, or else how will we witness to them? But we also cannot be so entangled with them that our faith becomes compromised. Now, I'm not saying that Lot chose to move into Sodom because he wanted to witness to the lost there. But here's what I am saying, and here's what's instructive for us. Lot's account shows us why compromise with unbelievers or getting ourselves entangled with unbelievers is a terrible way to witness to the lost. Look at verse 14 with me. So Lot went out, and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. 
but hear this, but to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. The truth is, compromise doesn't help us witness to the lost. It destroys our ability to witness to the lost. How much influence did Lot have with his sons-in-law? None. He couldn't even take him seriously. After all, he'd lived in Sodom for a number of years, apparently never opposing the wickedness that he saw there. He had given his daughters to these men. Now he wants to warn them of God's judgment for sin. The only way they can reconcile the inconsistency of Lot's life and his sudden newfound concern about God's judgment is that, well, he must be joking. In other words, you've got to be kidding me, Lot. We should expect the unbelievers around us to compare what we're saying to how we're living. And if you want to have an effective witness, those two things need to match. Compromise might grant us proximity to an unbeliever, but it will never, ever give us their ear when it comes to sharing spiritual things. Jude one twenty three gives us a great deal of insight on how it should look when we witness to the lost. It says, But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And first, we need to be afraid. We need to understand that being near enough to an unbeliever to witness to them puts us in an amount of spiritual danger. Second, it should look like rescuing someone from a fire. When a fireman saves someone from a burning building, does he approach that person casually? Does he introduce them himself and spark up a friendship with them? Does he ask them how their day is and sit down in, in the midst of the flames? No, he snatches them out quickly. He wants, to, he wants to save them, but he also wants to expose himself to as little danger as possible. Now, as a believer, Lot could have been a fireman, so to speak, in the city of Sodom. He could have had an effective witness to the Sodomites, perhaps even leading some of them out of the fire and into faith. But what was he instead? He became one of them. He sat down with them in the flames, happy to join them. That leads me to the next part of lesson two. A compromised believer, part four, resists deliverance. A compromised believer resists deliverance. Look at verses 15 through 17. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, The men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Look at verse 16. It says, While he lingered, the angels had to take hold of Lot and physically tear him away because in his flesh he desired to remain. He lingered in the face of God's wrath because he wasn't ready to make a break with Sodom. And can you see the application for us? How many of us have lingered toying with worldly things for far too long? I'm ashamed to admit I have. How many of us have continued living with compromise even after realizing God's wrath for it? I'm ashamed to say I have. It's hard to make a break with sinful compromise because it's our own fleshly desires that led us into it in the first place. Second Peter 2.8 says that Lot 
tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Doesn't that just make you wonder why, if he was tormented, why did he remain? Why would he torment himself? Well, his flesh was in control. His flesh wasn't tormented by the things he saw in Sodom. It was his righteous soul that was tormented. And it's confusing why Lot would choose to torment himself, but we do the same thing when we choose to remain in compromise. And it is a choice because as believers, we have all the resources we need to escape it. We may not have angels ready to drag us away, but we do. We have been set free from the bondage of sin. We have the Holy Spirit convicting and guiding and teaching us. We have the truth of God's word that sanctifies us. And we have a loving Heavenly Father that chastens and disciplines us. And speaking of chastening, Lot is about to experience severe chastening. Think about it. What's he about to lose? He's about to lose everything. All of his possessions, all of his wealth. It was the pursuit of wealth that led him to Sodom in the first place, and all of it is about to be burned up. Is that why he lingered? It would fit the narrative. Now, Lot not only lingered in the face of God's judgment, but he also refused to obey the angel's command. They told him, escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. But look at what Lot said to them, starting in verse 18. It says, then Lot said to them, please know, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See, now this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of this city was called Zoar. Do you see how Law is resisting his own rescue? Instead of obeying, he argues. Instead of submission, he negotiates. It's very easy to see Lot's weak faith, his selfishness, and his, his desire to remain entangled with the world. And it's probably getting old hearing me say this, but we do that as well, don't we? Don't we begin to negotiate when we become convicted over our sin? Don't we think of how we could continue to partake in a way that wouldn't be explicitly forbidden? Don't we attempt to moderate instead of amputate? Are we tolerant of little compromises in our lives? After Lot was pulled out of Sodom, he begged the angel to permit him to flee to Zoar, and he justified it by saying, isn't it just a little one? Look at verses 23 through 26 with me. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, for the sake of time, skip down to verse 30. When Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar, and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave and that leads me to the last lesson on your handouts. Lesson three, Lot fled the world very late. Lot fled the world very late. 
I gave a great deal of thought on how to word this last lesson because, well, at first I, I had it worded, Lot fled the world too late, but that seems to be too final. We don't have any further record of Lot's life after this chapter. And knowing that sanctification is progressive, knowing that God doesn't abandon believers to their sin, believing that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, I have to be somewhat hopeful for Lot that he turned things around later in life. There's a saying that I'm sure many of you have heard. It goes like this. When is the best time to plant a tree? And the answer is 20 years ago. And that sort of gets a chuckle because you can't go back in time and plant a tree 20 years ago and come back and have a mature tree today. But then there's always a follow-up question. When is the second best time to plant a tree? And the answer is today. Fleeing compromise or fleeing the, thing, the love of the things of the world is like planting a tree. It's best to flee early in your Christian life to avoid all the heartache and the loss and the suffering that it'll bring. And if you find that you've been walking in compromise for some time, the second best time to flee is today. In verses 18 through 20, Lot argued with the angels, not wanting to flee to the mountains out of fear, but in verse 30, it says he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. So he went up to dwell in the mountains. He had just seen Sodom and Gomorrah completely destroyed because of their wickedness, and I suppose perhaps he saw the same wickedness taking place in Zoar. And it seems that his fear for God's wrath finally overcame his love for the things of the world. There's a number of things that Lot fled the world too late for. He fled the world too late to remain uncorrupted. He fled the world too late to influence his sons-in-law. He fled the world too late to avoid severe chastisement from the Lord. And these next two, I especially want husbands to pay and fathers to pay attention to. He fled the world too late for his wife. The angels told them, do not look back behind you, yet she did. Why? She did not want to leave Sodom. She looked back with longing at the destroyed city instead of looking ahead in thankfulness for God's deliverance. And lastly, he fled the world too late for his daughters. Look at verse 31 and 32 with me. And by the way, I recognize that these verses are difficult to read but I have to believe that they're in God's word for our benefit. So, Verses 31 and 32. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is no man on earth to come into us as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. The first thing I want you to think about is that Lot and his daughters have left Zoar to live in the mountains, but have they completely departed from worldliness? It's possible that Lot was convicted about not having obeyed the angel's command to flee to the mountains, and now we're seeing him begin to obey. But what did he make sure to bring with him to the mountains? He brought a great deal of wine to the mountains. And he's not only willing to drink this wine past the point of drunkenness, he's willing to drink it to complete incapacitation on not once, but two occasions. So although he has fled to the mountains, although Sodom is destroyed, Sodom is still alive where? In Lot's heart. 
And second, while it's true that we cannot save our children, as fathers, our decisions can certainly contribute to their corruption. We are the leaders of our families, and they are largely along for the ride, learning from the influences that we have on them and the influences that we allow into their lives. Lot's daughters left Sodom, but Sodom never left Lot's daughters. Without being graphic, think of the influence that Lot had on his daughters. He was willing to hand his daughters over against their will to the men of Sodom to be abused. And look here how they're following his example. They abused their own father against his will by subduing him first with the alcohol. If we feed our children what the world offers, if they listen to the world's music, if they watch the world's movies, if they take in the world's education, we shouldn't be surprised when they grow up and become just like what? The world. Never, ever apologize for sheltering your children from the influences of this evil world. And if you're past the, the years of raising your own children, may God grant you great influence in the lives of your grandchildren. I'd like to conclude with a few thoughts about what we should learn from Lot's life. Earlier I said that Lot cannot be held up as an example to follow, but by his, this account in Genesis 19 is absolutely instructive for both believers and unbelievers. For unbelievers, in this account we see a man who had no righteousness of his own, yet God accounted him righteous by faith. We see a man by, who by all human understanding deserved the same wrath that the Sodomites received, but instead he received only what? Mercy and grace and rescue. That same mercy and grace is available to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Now for believers, how is Lot's account instructive for us? Lot is a picture of someone saved from the fire, but having suffered extreme loss. He was rescued, but everything that Lot pursued in Sodom the fruits of his worldly ambition were destroyed. It cost him everything. His home, his possessions, destroyed. His wife, dead. His sons-in-law, dead. His daughters, immensely corrupted. What about his dignity? Devastated. Lot's life is an illustration of what we find in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15 which describes how our earthly works will be tested by the Lord to determine heavenly rewards. Here's what these verses say. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. The imagery is simple to understand. As believers, we are all building upon the foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ. We can choose to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Those are the things that will endure the fire of God's testing. Or we can choose to build with wood, hay, and straw. These are the things that will be consumed in the fire of God's testing. Lot was saved, 
but he was saved as through fire. He was building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, but what did he build? With wood, hay, and straw, he built a worldly, compromised life, and it was consumed. He was rescued from the wrath God poured out on that evil city, but he only scarcely escaped with his life. And the last time we see him, he's destitute, still suffering from the effects, the corruption that Sodom wrought in his heart in the mountains. And that's terrible, but there's a bigger point I want to make. What he lost was not merely things in this life. He gave up heavenly rewards. Make no mistake, believer. You are building upon the foundation of your faith. We are all building something. And what's it made of? Is it temporal? Is it consumable? In our flesh, a worldly life may look very good to us. The land looked very good to Lot, but to God it was fit to be burned. When we come to the end of our lives and stand before our Lord, will our work on earth be rewarded or will it be burned away until only the foundation remains? That's what it means to be saved as through fire. It means that by faith you were saved, but you have nothing of value to present from your life to your Lord when you stand before him. I want you to finish this sentence for me. Abraham was the father of faith. Abraham was the father of faith. What is Lot the father of? One commentator said, Lot is the father of all such as who are scarcely saved. And that is a sobering thought. But here's an even more sobering thought. What will I be known as? And what will you be known as? Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that Lot's example might speak to us, Lord. I pray that it go with us in the coming weeks and months and and his, his account, the account of his life may be a great warning to us. And if there are things, Lord, that we are compromised, living in compromise with, whether it be the entertainment that we take in or the even friendships that we have or whatever it might be, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to help wrench those things from our hands even if we're holding on to them like Lot held on to the city. Rescue us, Lord. Help us to see things clearly. Let us not be deceived by the pull of the things of the world. Help us to honor you and glorify Christ with our lives. Pray in Jesus' name.